Hey everybody, this is Bruce from Printavo, Simple Shop Management Software. Today we've got a very special guest joining us, Jason Gleber from Unique Tees out of Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, Jason's got a really unique story. He's got a large shop out in Delaware and he had some really cool different interesting points that, that I want to get into in different parts of the business. So Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So tell us a little bit about the business. I know you guys started off in 1979. It was your father's business, and you took over and really blew it out from there. Um, yeah. So d dig into that. Yeah, so my dad started the company in 1979, um, and my brother started working for him in probably 2006-ish. Uh, um, <clears throat> I had gone to school for hotel restaurant management, and uh, my dad was going to sell the company and uh, asked if my brother and I wanted to purchase it from him. So uh, in 2008, my brother and I joined forces and, and um, we purchased the company from my dad and uh, we, um, we pretty much have blown it up by um, about a thousand percent over the last uh, eight, nine years. So to give people a sense of where you guys are at now, um, what were your revenue? What was your revenue like last year? How many presses do you guys have? Things like that. We have three presses, and uh, our revenue was um, hovering around $3 million. Okay, got it. And how many folks do you guys have at the shop now? 26. Got it. Very cool. And so when you bought the business from your dad, how did, how did that work? I mean, um, obviously, so, he, he wants to value it probably at a different number than you do and getting financing together. and. So actually, he was going to put it on the market, so he actually brought in um, – a, a, a business evaluation team um, and they gave him an, a value of what it was going to be worth should he put it on the public market um, and that is exactly what he offered to sell it to us for um, he wasn't going to sell it for anything less um, to anybody in the public so the um, the best part about it was though that uh, regarding financing because he didn't really necessarily have a retirement set up being a small business owner and um, you know back then Nobody was pushing you to put money into a 401k or anything of that nature. Um, he basically uh, sold it to us, and he held the note. So we pay him a monthly buyout. Um, the, the initial buyout started off as a 20-year buyout. We've accelerated those payments, so we should finish up in around 12 and a half years. And I guess we're approaching year nine um, of the buyout, so we actually only have about three and a half years left. Uh, that buyout, and he basically uses it like a pension. So we pay him on a monthly basis, and uh, you know it allows him to, um, you know, pretty much have a, a retirement um, income for all intents and purposes. So that's an interesting process. So what did, uh, what was the company valued at or then? Can you say? Um, it was two hundred and eighty-five thousand. Okay, and the way that it's structured. Uh, when you stepped in, were you working at the shop before? Did you know much about printing or how, how did that I mean, transition go? Well, I was born in 82 and then the company was started in 79. So the fact is, is that I grew up in the industry, um, you know, for the first eight, nine years of the business, it was in our basement. Um, our entire basement was a print shop and, uh, you know, it had a separate entrance and everything. So clients could come in and out of it. But, um, I kind of grew up in that, you know, summertime was, you know, spent half working and half playing. And uh, so I had grown up in it. And until probably the age of 13, 14, um, you know, we actively participated in working at the, at the shop. So I was familiar with the, with the basics. Um, obviously, at that point, you know, almost 12, 13 years later, 
um, you know, advancements and, and so forth. There were some changes that had come along, but um, nothing was so drastic that I was unable to jump back into it. But my brother was working in the production portion of my dad's company. Um, and when I came back in, I had no desire to do production. So it actually worked out well. I didn't really need to know how to do um, the production side of things. I needed to know how to sell. And so I was a sales guy, you know, previously working in, you know, that hotel and restaurant management uh, industry. So I came back on as um, the head of sales and my brother stayed on as the head of production. And so that's basically how we worked. And so I got lucky. I, I'm still to this day. I can, um, I mean, I've, I've done everything from, uh, you know, screen printing, embroidery, all of that stuff. I competed in Atlantic City in a, in a print competition with my brother as the uh, unloader in an, in an automatic fastest, uh, you know, load and unload on an automatic. So I can do it. Um, but I, I would much rather work at an air conditioned office than, um, in, in the, uh, production end of things. Sure. Whereas, what was that contest you were in? It was, uh, it was an M and R M and R ran a contest when they had one of their new presses come out. This was probably, I'm going to say four or five years ago at the, uh, ISS show in mm-hmm. Atlantic city. And, uh, we got nominated as one of the um, faster duos, and uh, so we went there. And I don't, we actually, I think we had a place in maybe third or fourth, um, but there were some guys there that were loading and unloading at like 2.8 seconds per shirt, and we were, we were over three seconds, but uh, still pretty fast for a guy that doesn't normally do production, and, uh, and you know, both of us being in our early 20s. And, um, but, so like I said, I can do it, but uh, it definitely is not uh, my choice, you know, for day-to-day work. Yeah, that's pretty cool though. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the transition to buying a business. So first, you partnered with your brother. Was that did you have to sell him into it? Uh, was he already interested? Yeah, my my brother. Um, he's the type of guy that didn't really want to work for anyone else. He he wanted to work for himself. Um, and I was getting ready to start a family, and the idea of being able to control my own hours, um, you know, my own schedule, that type of thing. Um, became appealing to me. Obviously, in the um, hotel and restaurant management business, you know, you could work uh, 40, 60, 80 hours. So, you know, having a child, having a wife, um, those things were definitely not uh, conducive to putting in 80 hour work weeks. So, um, not that I didn't put in some long weeks to get this thing to where it is, but um, I certainly had much more control over my schedule. I could work from home, especially being sales, you know, from my computer if I absolutely needed to. Um, so it gave me that, gave me that type of flexibility. Um, but, but, uh, no, I, I, he, he was on board, man. He, you know, the, the fact that we both were going to have our own portion of it where he was going to be doing production and I was going to be doing sales. Um, it worked out well, you know, and, uh, when we first started, we were in the same building and, uh, you know, as any brothers will do or business partners, um, we, you know, our, ten, our uh, strenuous times, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, we still walk out the door as brothers. And so that kept our relationship solid and, uh, you know, we never had too much of an issue. And, and now we both have our own buildings. He has a warehouse, um, a 9,000 square foot warehouse, and I have a 6,000 square foot retail uh, store with, you know, offices and employees. So we each actually run our, our own portion of the company, kind of. Did you think that it was <clears throat> important looking back <clears throat> sorry, to your success to have a partner or do you think that it was still doable solo, like, you know, guiding directions, to be honest, putting things up? Yeah, to be honest, I mean, having him on the production end and, and knowing and trusting that the quality that he was kicking out would have been exactly what I would have expected, mm-hmm. um, I think was very important. I don't think that, um, 
you know, unless I had another really go-to guy um, for that production portion, that uh, I would have got, gone in this direction at least. You know, maybe I could have done image as a um, subbing everything out, you know, and we were that, that store that represented that we did everything but subbed it all out behind the scenes. Um, but I don't think I would have kept all of our production in-house without having someone like my brother on the opposite end to, to be able to trust doing that portion. What would you say is the difficult part about that transition of buying the business? I mean, you know, going in from, uh, like, what were you doing before? Well, I was, <clears throat> I was managing restaurants. Okay, um, that's right, that's right. You said yeah, you were so I was, I was, I was, Yeah, I was traveling. Actually, um, I was working for uh, the Macaroni Grill uh, group. And I was traveling up and down the East Coast, opening up their new restaurants. So that responsibility, um, I think that the, the biggest transition is, is there's no days off when you own a company. You know, I mean, you're you're pretty much, you know, you have to make sure that payroll is hitting. You have to make sure that all of these things are going on. Whereas when you work for somebody else, when you walk out the door, you walk out the door. You know, and it, and it's no longer technically your problem. Um, you know, it's somebody else's problem. Um, so I think that was a, a big, you know, a big deal. You know. If, you find people that do care about your company um, like you do, but they're few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, those are situations where, you know, it's uh, – I, I think that would be one of the biggest things is that, um, you know, you're, you're worried constantly about, uh, you know, making sure everything's moving forward. Sure, sure. And organizationally, what were some big changes that you guys made that, that you saw some big improvements? I'm sure when you stepped in, you were like – Holy crap! I can't believe we're doing this this way. Yeah, so um, just the the basic organizing organizing period, Bruce. To be honest with you, um, my dad, you know, being a a guy that had you know two three employees, four employees at most, um, you know, his idea of organizing was completely different from our idea of organizing. So, you know, artwork wasn't in alphabetical order, and you know, things weren't kept up as the way that, you know, um, a bigger shop would need to. There, there really was no production schedule for all intents and purposes. It was, um, you know, more along the lines of, uh, you, you know, let's knock these three jobs out today and then we can roll out. You know, it's a hot day. We'll get three jobs done and we'll get the hell out of here. Um, whereas, you know, now it's, it's you know, and, and when we took over, I mean, when we first started, we actually had um, a handwritten production book, uh, a binder, and it had 52 tabs in it. And it was week by week, and we kept it from year to year so that we could go back and see, you know, when we were busy and when we weren't. Um, but, you know, I literally would write in every single day uh, jobs for the, the following week because we would, we would book five days ahead of time. And we would write the jobs in, the quantity of pieces and the directions and so forth. And every day they'd come over and grab that production book and, and write it up <coughs> on a whiteboard. And, uh, and we would, you know, then I would take the book back and fill it in for the, you know, the following day. But, uh, um yeah, that's what we did for a very long time. Then we mm-hmm. went to, you know, kind of a, a Google Docs type of thing. And then eventually we got to um, Printavo. And now obviously, you know, our calendar, um, you know, works for all of our departments. Gotcha. Very cool. Now talk to me. That's interesting, the, the, the changes in the scaling the business. A lot of shops reach these growing pains too. Where were you talking about a business just not even 10 years ago at 250000 call it, and, you, you know, you you guys made three million last year, so the company's valued at more, way more than it was originally. Uh, those stages, where would you say was the first kind of change in the business, other than you buying it into it? There was it, you know, okay, we need to hire uh, X amount of people right away, or we need a sales team right away, or 
What, what yeah, was that it, first challenge? So um, obviously we had a, we had an artist. We had an art department. Um, it started off as a single artist. I was the sales guy. Um, you know, my if, if if two people came in at the same time, my brother would come up front and help, or you know somebody would come up and and kind of you know bide my time until I could get done with the previous client. Um, so I think the first big changeover was realizing I can't handle everything anymore um, from the sales perspective. And when that happened, um, obviously we had to go out and figure out how to hire a salesperson. Um, and then after that, it was another artist and then another salesperson and then another salesperson. Um, and along the way, my brother's side was also trying to figure out how many production people they needed. So um, adding employees was definitely very scary because you're adding salaries, you're adding thing, expenses that you know, have to be taken care of, you're adding uh, things to payroll that you know, you're not used to taking out. Um, you know, and, and do I need that position? Have I grown enough to be able to keep them busy? So my biggest, um, one of my biggest uh, you know, kind of roadblocks along the way is I always, was, I always had to force unique image to be busier than it should be with the people that it had to make sure that I could take on somebody else. And so I was probably hiring after I should have, but I wanted to make sure that I could pay and keep that person busy before I brought somebody. So my brother and I would work all of that extra, um, you know, and we felt like it was time to bring somebody else in. And then when we did, um, you know, we would obviously slowly shift work over them and, and get them into the, the swing of things. Okay, so this is a really good thing that I want to touch on, Jason. And that's kind of hiring in a prediction model instead of as much as uh, a month behind. Obviously, there's a lead time to hiring someone, right? So there's the sure. finding the person, which God knows can take a while. The qualified talent out there pool is, is relatively small. Then there's training someone. And hopefully that they're working out longer time so that you can keep them. And then because, of course, if you can't, then you start all over the process. <clears throat> if you were to go back, Obviously, this is tough, right? Because it puts you, it could put you in the red easily if you bring on someone where you're saying, well, we could get to this revenue and be able to cover them in a couple months. Um, what would you have done again? Would you have done the same thing and be more conservative and hire after the fact or try to bet on your revenue a little bit more? Um, I think some of our transitions, I probably would have bet on our revenue a little bit more. So, um, you know, I, I think that there were certain points where I knew that we were continuing to get busy and we probably could have hired maybe two, three months ahead of time. But that being, <clears throat> that being said, I never put myself or the company in a position where we couldn't afford what we brought on. I've mm -hmm. never had to lay anyone off um, because we weren't busy enough. I never had to fire somebody because we weren't busy enough. So from that perspective, um, did I make a mistake? No, I just, I, I picked up the slack or John picked up the slack. You know, if, if we were too busy on production side, him and I would come back in at 10 o'clock at night and we'd work a couple of hours to make sure we stayed on pace. Um, there were, there were years, Bruce, where I was at home, um, you know, working until two, three o'clock in the morning on my computer to make sure that I stayed up on my emails. But that goes into any small business being successful. I mean, you're, you have to put that time and that effort in at some point in time or the fact of the matter is, is you're not going to succeed. You know, I, I don't care what it is that you're doing. So I don't think that I did it wrong. Um, you know, would I love to look back and be like, I, damn, I know that we're going to hit $2 million next year and I can yeah. afford to bring another sales guy in. Right. right. Yeah, I'd love to be able to say that and then could have brought somebody in, you know, ahead of time. But, um, you know, realistically, 
uh, I, like I said, I never had an issue with cash flow or anything like that. So from that perspective, watching people have to borrow or struggle or even close down, I, I can't say that I necessarily did it wrong either. Sure, sure. What was another, so that's, that's great information on hiring. What's another milestone that through that growth stage of the past nine years where you say, okay, wow, you know, this is definitely a point here where we're changing. Um, well, I mean, when, when John and I came on together, uh, we set some, some goals, you know, by certain ages, we wanted to hit certain revenue. Um, so I think, you know, hitting the million dollar mark, that was huge. Um, that was a big, uh, you know, like a really big deal for us. Um, you know, a lot of small businesses hope that someday they're going to be a million dollar company. So that was a, that was a huge deal for us. We actually, you know, celebrated, um, that milestone. Um, and then after that, the next, uh, number that we had targeted was 2.5 million. So when we hit that, that was also cool, but not as big a celebration. You know, that was kind of like, Hey, it happened, but we knew it was going to, we knew it was coming. You know, we were, we were crushing things at that point in time. Um, now I will say, you know, uh, our next uh, milestone is five million, and we have a, a certain age that we want to hit that by. That will probably be a much bigger celebration, um, you know, because at that point, uh, obviously, now we've become um, a bigger player in the market, and uh, now we're, you know, not just a blip on the map. Now, now people know about you. So, sure. um, I think that was big, and I think also some clients along the way, landing certain clients that we had been trying for for a while. You know, the first time that we got to work with the 76ers, that was a big deal for us. Um, you know, obviously with them being in Philadelphia and that market being so tough within screen printing and, and promotional products um, and just, you know, professional teams, period. Um, you know, I, I've been bidding on Washington National stuff for 10 years, haven't won. One time I was even the best price, but they went to the guy previous year and offered him the match. And, you know, he obviously agreed to match so that he wouldn't lose the business. So it's one of those things where getting in that door um, is is a was a huge thing. So those besides the, the dollar milestones, I think some of those larger clients that we were, you know, that we targeted and, and just kept after um, those would have been, you know, some of the other big things for us. OK, so that's interesting. So the sales side of this. There's the bigger and the smaller side. Let's talk about the bigger first. Bidding for some clients like this, whether sports teams or large companies, how does that process work? You talk about bidding. Is there some sort of marketplace where you go to or you just have to connect with the folks? Who no, are no, side? actually. Yeah, actually. Um, so it, like especially for government bids, um, you know, there's actually a site um, and I'm, I'm not very familiar with it because one of my other sales guys, that's his uh, portion. He basically works on these bid sites. Um, we actually have two guys that we're assigning to it now, but um, they're almost daily, uh, highly competitive. But um, you know, a lot of times you're not up against multiple people because they're coming out at such a rapid rate that uh, they want to bid a price turned around within 24 hours and so forth. So um, you can land some of those jobs. With regards to the professional sports teams, they're sending their um, Basically, they're sending their bids out for the following year, pretty much when the season ends the previous year. So, for example, um, we work with a minor league baseball team. I get their bid sheet in October and November. You know, when you think about minor league baseball, it ends in September. By October, they're sending me 120 pages of um, next year's giveaways and promotions and so forth. And not to say that they've even sold all those, but they're trying to sell those as the promotionals, promotional giveaways for their, their games. Um, and so we'll pick out the ones that we know we can be competitive on. Sometimes we'll, we'll take a shot at some that we know we might not be competitive on, but hell, why not? And, uh, you know, 
nine times out of ten, we're winning some. You know, our, our big uh, – the things we usually do win are screen printing. Um, but you got to get aggressive. And, I mean, um, you know, when I first came into this, my dad was always like, you know, don't, don't cut your margins. And uh, I believed that for a long time. And then I started realizing that if the volume makes up for the extra nickel – uh, you know, then you can cut that nickel to get the job if you, it's going to get you 10,000 t-shirts. Um, so it started to become a balance of, uh, you know, are we keeping a press running consistently? And is that press, even if it's only making a dollar per shirt instead of $2 per shirt, but it's running nonstop, um, in the end of the year, am I still making the same amount of money? And the fact of the matter is, is that you are because, your volume makes up for the fact of not being busy. So $1 better, better than no dollars, even though $2 better than $1. But if I'm at $2 higher, I don't get the job, period. Um, so, you know, we started doing some larger volume runs. Uh, we started working with some national vendors, some national groups, um, you know, and, and I mean, like right now, you know, we're, I'm in a bid right now for um, a company up in New York that wants to subcontract their screen printing down to us. And it's 100,000 pieces. You know, when you think about that, it's like, okay, if I make a dollar on that hundred thousand pieces, I added a hundred thousand dollars in gross revenue. Is it really costing me a dollar to print each T-shirt? No, probably not. It's probably only costing me fifty cents, sixty cents after my, you know, you factor in all of your your factors. So I'm making, I'm adding forty grand to my net. Um, you know, when you start looking at numbers like that and that type of volume, um, you know, and you have a partner that's fifty fifty. You start saying, "Hey, forty grand nets, twenty thousand uh, dollar, you know, salary increase." I don't know. There's too many people out there that wouldn't take a twenty thousand dollar salary increase. Mm -hmm. So, how do you get on these some of these bid lists? You know, for you talk about they send out these bids. Is it just connecting and networking with the right? No, folks? no, man. We had to jump through a lot of hoops. You, you have to, uh, you know, you have to upgrade your Duns and Bradstreet number. Make sure that you're all solid with them. You have to go through some different hoops with the government um, and get approved to be on their vendor list. Um, there's, I mean, it literally took us probably a better part of a month. My director of operations, Caitlin, who you've talked to probably filled out 600 forms, um, you know, and, and went back and forth and phone calls and train, you know, people walking her through processes. And, um, my, my sales guy, business to business sales guy, Steve, same thing, you know, uh, but it just, it was a, it was a, a crazy, crazy process that we had to go through to get onto this. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very tough. Now, with regards to some other bids, I mean, realistically, anybody can call up to the marketing team at uh, you know their local NBA team and say, "Hey, would you mind sending me your your list for promotional products?" Some of them might say yes, you know, if they're not uh, if they're not rude, they'll tell you sure, you know, and you're welcome to send in a bid. Fact of the matter is, is that they're probably really only looking at the top three. So mm -hmm. if they scan your pages and you're not you're not good on the first three or four pages, they're probably going to throw it in the trash. Um, so I don't know how much time you want to waste on filling out 120 bid sheets. Uh, um, but you know, you, you can still get that opportunity. They're not going to give you any feedback. So if you lose, you lose, they're not going to tell you, Hey, you were high. Um, but you can pretty much gather that, um, with regards to like your local state and, and, and county governments, I would tell everybody to bid on those. They're not huge contracts. I mean, if you've got a big County, um, you know, I'm in Delaware. So, uh, you know, when, I, when we start talking about the state contract, um, you know, in comparison to the state of California or Pennsylvania or one of those other states, sure. it's probably it's probably a joke. Um, but, you know, like our county our the city of Wilmington, you know, that contract is only a thirty thousand dollar contract for their parks and recreation, for example. But it's a three year, 
you know, and they have the option to renew. And as long as you don't screw up, they're going to renew with you. Um, you know, and, and you get, then you start to, when you get into that type of stuff, then it starts to branch out. So what's the city funding? Okay. The city's funding this project. Well, then that project's going to ask the city who they're using for all of their products. Well, now you get into that project, but that project's not a bid. So now you actually start making some money on those projects, even though you cut your margins for this to get the city contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like we've held our city, local city contract for a number of years that we have the Newcastle County, which is our county that we're in. We've, we've held that contract for their maintenance division and parks and rec and so forth um, and those types of things. So, you know, we, we bid on those every year and we're very aggressive. And again, I, I'm aggressive because it transfers into other departments where I'm, they might not have to put out a bid for their requirements. Um, and so therefore you don't have to cut your margins as tight, but they're still going to use you because you're the sanctioned vendor for the County or for the city or, or for the state. Got it. And so did you, is this one of the reasons that you guys kept continuing to grow over this nine year period so much? Did you tell your sales team and, and you guys to focus on these larger contracts? And, I did not. Okay. A- absolutely not. To be honest with you, Bruce, probably the last 12 to 18 months, um, and we started going after what we called whales, um, because, uh, you know, we were dominating the, the local bit, small business and, and that type of stuff. And, and even still, I'm, I, I don't have everything that Delaware has to offer, but the cool thing about Delaware, and I was telling you this in our conversation is that because of our tax laws, um, there's a ton of headquartered businesses here in Delaware that are national companies like DuPont, AstraZeneca, and, you know, these banks. And, um, you know, I mean, think about even our president, Trump has, like 20 of his companies are headquartered in Delaware because of the tax breaks that these guys get. Mm -hmm. So, um, we have an advantage. They're in my backyard, you know? And and so how did you dominate the local market then? Um, we just word of mouth, honestly, um, you know, our, our turnaround time and Delaware is a different beast, uh, than a lot of other places because it's so small. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows everybody. Um, you know, it was kind of like, well, who did that? Oh, your shirt looks great. Your company stuff looks great. Who did it? Oh, unique image did it. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, just, it was a, it was a landslide for a while of that type of stuff, you know, and that was even before Facebook, you know, and, and then when Facebook came around, we started utilizing that and the other free marketing. Um, but, and, but you had to have, you had to have really put your name out there more. Like did, were you kind of the, the t-shirt guy in the town or like, you know, just blasting out that, Hey, do you need something or reaching out or cold emailing, cold calling or I, I, I when I first started, I did some cold emails mm-hmm. um, and literally you're, you're going to laugh. But I literally I broke out the yellow pages and anybody that had an email address in the yellow pages got an email from me. From yeah. A to Z. Wow. I, I, I literally went through the yellow pages and that is exactly how I started, um, you know, building the the growth of the business. And uh, it's a great uh, uh, it's a great initial start for someone who's just getting going. I, I literally, I, I didn't know where else to go, so I opened up the damn phone book, and uh, you know that, that's pretty much what I did. And if I, you know, if I could find a website, I would go to their website and I would look for an email. And uh, you know, I never cold called. Um, I, I, I hate cold calls. I don't want to get them, so I don't give them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, so from that perspective, um, did some emailing, went out and visited a lot of clients, and and created relationships, and um, you know, things of that nature. But I realistically, uh, you know, it, it was word of mouth. We, we didn't do a lot of advertising, man. Our, our advertising budget, or, or not budget, but our, our spending um, for the first couple of years was probably 500 bucks a month. 
Um, now we have a much larger budget. We probably spend a hundred plus thousand dollars a year on marketing. Now, um, you know, we, we sponsor, um, the local, uh, the 87ers, which is the, uh, minor league team for the 76ers. We're one of their biggest partners, the Wilmington blue rocks who are the minor league team for the Kansas city Royals. We're one of their biggest partners. So now I spend some money. Um, and it, you know, if you come into Delaware and you see, you'll see my UI, uh, brand pretty much everywhere. Um, I mean, we blanket the marketplace. We sponsor softball teams and we sponsor, um, you know, five K's and we sponsor as much as we can to, to get our brand out there. And we've done that probably for four or five years straight. And now locally, my brand is recognized and I can put the UI out there without having to put unique image under it anymore. Finally, and people will recognize what it is. So, do you think that the at your guys' size now, the that the kind of blanket local brand awareness type of marketing pays good dividends compared to say really targeted? You know, okay, I'm going to spend a hundred dollars on Facebook ads or Google ads or whatever, or newspaper ads, and I'll get back X amount of dollars. Because like brand is tough to measure, right? It, but at some point. You know, like I guess at your guys' size, you realize, okay, we got to start doing this. It's important for us to continue to grow. I think what it was is the repetition. Um, mm -hmm. You know, everybody always says, like, if you're going to do a, a, a radio ad, you got to do it repeatedly for months before it's actually going to work. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the repetition, you know, it, um, having, you know, our hats worn everywhere or our shirts or being on uh, just everything that we can get the UI onto, even if it's costing me money or I'm breaking even. Um, you know, and that's, that's kind of been my mantra is like, Hey, if I'm, even if I'm not making money, but my UI is on a thousand shirts, uh, I reached a thousand people. Sure. Um, am I going to make money off of one, two, five of those thousand? Hopefully, you know, and, and maybe not this year, but next year I'll get, I'll get return on investment from that job. Um, so I, I, I felt like that was a big thing and I, we really wanted to brand, we wanted to brand really, really hard. And, um, we, we've been in our new retail location now. It's going to be a year coming up in all in uh, August. And, uh, you know, I think this coming year after the, after the fourth quarter, because our fourth quarter is absolute insanity. I mean, we probably do 40% of our business between, um, actually probably 50% of our business between August and December. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we're going to do, you know, like every door direct mail, we're going to start targeting, you know, the businesses and, um, we're looking for another outside salesperson to go out and, uh, target, you know, local businesses that we're not doing business with. Sure. Um, and that's going to be pretty much our first marketing that we've done probably in the last four or five years, other than these partnerships that we have with, um, you know, the, the baseball teams, the basketball teams, sponsoring the softball teams, you know, they put in a, a really nice mini golf course up here. I, I sponsored a whole, you know, it was a five year deal, but everyone that goes up and plays this mini golf course sees my hole and my logo, you know, and, and you'd be surprised how many people take a picture with the sign and put it on Facebook and tag us. Oh, saw you on, on the riverfront or, you know, this and that. So, um, you know, we do, we sponsor the festivals that are local. We gotcha. do contests, you know, we do contests and stuff like that constantly to try to drive our brand. Interesting. Um, out there. Very cool. Now, with your sales team too, I'm assuming they're commission focused. Like, there's a base plus commission or package. they are not. Okay, are so not. how does that work? Because a lot of people so, want to go straight towards commission and say, okay, well, the motivation here is to sell, and you get rewarded for selling. And uh, and I'm probably I probably did it wrong. You know, guys tell me all the time that I did it. wrong. All right, sorry about that. We just uh, had a little technical difficulty, but you were just chatting about salespeople. I asked about sales commission. You said you don't commission them. Yep. How does that work? 
So all my sales guys right now are on just a flat salary. Um, mm -hmm. The reason that, that we chose to go this route was because um, I had so many walk-ins, call-ins, um, email uh, clients. Uh, I didn't want to create any issues with you know who was getting what leads and so forth. So um, we were busy enough that I didn't need people to go out and get business. It was coming to Unique Image. Um, so we, we basically, uh, you know, we pay everybody a salary. Um, obviously their, their salaries are all different, uh, based on, you know, how long they've been with the business and so forth and so on. Um, we do do bonuses. Mm -hmm. Um, so they have, you know, those opportunities exist based on performance and, uh, so forth. But now we are starting to get into where we're, we're looking for commissioned salespeople. So the, the sales position that we're hiring for now is 100% commission based. There's no base salary. There's no anything there, but we're going to feed them leads and we want them to go out and generate new business. Um, but I haven't needed outside salespeople. Um, I had so much volume coming into the company, um, that I, I didn't need anybody. And, and why would I pay them commission on clients that are already coming in here? They're not having to go get anything. They're not having to, you know, they weren't having to do any real legwork other than take orders, you know, sure. for all intents and purposes. Gotcha. Um, Interesting. And how are you? How are you comping or planning on comping for an outside sales where there's no base? Is it all a percentage of what they bring in? Yeah. So um, you know, I, I, I've kind of done some research here and there, um, whether it's you know based off of a net or off the gross. But it seems like you know 10% of the gross um, is a is a number that people have have said is is you know um, okay. You know, from that commission base or 20 to 20 to 30 percent of the net. Um, my issue with trying to figure the net out is, you know, adding all of those pieces together, you know, utilities and labor and all of these things. Yeah, what, it's what, difficult what, to, it's very difficult. And I don't ever want there to be an issue between myself and the salesperson. So I feel like just doing a gross, uh, commission is probably the direction that we're going to head. Yeah. Uh, it's simple you know, for reporting way, too. They can get good visibility right. and, right. and they know right. exactly what they're, what they're doing. So if they upsell, you know, and, and they can take a, an order from 800 to a thousand dollars, they know that they just increased their paycheck by 80 bucks. Sure. Uh, you know, there's no, uh, or I'm sorry, by 20 bucks. There's no question in their mind what it is that they're, uh, you know, at the end, like, you know, oh, I sold a thousand dollar order, but realistically, what's the net? You know, is it going to be 650 bucks or is it going to be 750 bucks? Or, you know, I, I don't want there to be any questions. You know, it's like, hey, you handed in a thousand dollar invoice, you made a hundred bucks. Um, you know, so I think that's the direction that we're going to probably go is going to be that gross. Um, but I am currently looking for two, you know, one to two commissioned sales guys. I do have a, a business to business sales guy, um, but he has to hit a, a certain number because of his salary. So until he hits that number in sales, no commissions kick in. So basically he has to hit a number where it would cover his salary. And then after that, he has a commission base that would, that would kick in if he sells over those numbers. Gotcha. Very cool. I want to switch gears a little bit. You talked about the retail space that you have. It's a large retail. It was a 45,000 square feet. No, no, no. Um, it's total. It's about 6,000 square feet. Oh, okay. Um, the actual floor space is about 4,500. Oh, okay, uh, got it. Maybe four thousand, um, somewhere in that range. Um, we use the rest for offices, conference room, you know, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, we have about four thousand, forty-five hundred square feet of open um, retail space with racks and and so forth. Is that to say for the customers that want things customized to come in and pick stuff out, or what is that? 
Are you selling? So we put we goods? put our overflow. We put our overflow. We put our um, you know misorders out there, and we put them on racks where people can come in and pick them up. And um, you know, instead of me having to ship it back or whatever, I might have a five dollar rack. So if it's a polo that would normally cost them ten bucks, but it only costs me four dollars, um, they can buy it for five bucks, and then I'll logo it. So you know, if their logo is six dollars to embroider, you know, now that they have an eleven dollar polo instead of a seventeen dollar polo or a sixteen dollar polo, um, it also is for consignment. So we've offered the clothing lines that we print for. If they want to put their clothes in on a rack, um, you know, they can put their clothes in here and, and say that, hey, my clothes are available at a retail location, and we charge a flat fee every piece sold. You know, we take a flat number off of it no matter how much it's sold for. There's a flat fee. Um, and then we have our own clothing line. Um, so Unique Image has, you know, its own uh, stuff. We have um, tees. You know, all kinds of apparel that, you know, when we're if we ever run into a, a slower time on one of our presses, we'll throw up one of the 100 designs that we have and print off some stuff and bring it down. Um, we have a very large hat um, line. So we have probably 100, 150 different hats out on the floor that have unique image on them that are for uh, sale. And uh, and then we also have um, we have samples. So, you know, like Holloway, for example, has their own section in our store, um, Ultra Club. You know, we have all of these brands, Port & Company, Sandmar has probably two or three racks in here of grommeted items that are, you know, Port & Company and Sport Tech. Um, so we probably have a thousand pieces in here that are grommeted items that people can come in, feel, touch, walk around. And that way, when they pick it off the shelf, they can walk right over to the sales guy and go, dude, I love this piece. It's got the grommet on the back. We know what colors it comes in. The style number's right there. You know, and, and it's good to go. So, And some of those samples come grommeted. Um, and then we bought our own grommeting system as well. So we grommet our own samples. And, uh, you know, my VP of sales does an awesome job with, um, you know, grommeting and creating tags and everything for these, these pieces to be, uh, to be on our floor. So, so what was, the, what was the, the thought process behind the own clothing line? Um, I mean, we, we saw everybody else doing it and we thought it was cool. And I always, I always said, you know, I'm, I'm printing all these pieces. Why am I wearing somebody else's product when I go out to the bar, when I'm going out to dinner? Like, why aren't I wearing my own piece? Why aren't I continuously advertising for unique image? And, uh, you know, believe it or not, dude, I mean, if you go out to local bars, restaurants, um, you know, Dewey Beach is a huge party beach. If you go down there any given weekend, you're going to see six, ten of my hats on people down there. Um, you go to the local bars, you're going to see our tees, our hats, our softball jerseys on guys. Are these um, blanks or are they like with your logo? Nope. nope. Logos on them. Oh, okay. You know? Okay. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, logos, um, all kinds of different stuff. Okay. Um, I got we you. have a, even have like a marketing, uh, um, line that has like a, 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 a QRC logo on the back that's like says scan me, you know, and it comes up with all of our information. It's a big ass, uh, you know thing on the back of the shirt so people are always taking pictures of the back of our guys shirts as they're walking around and it pops up unique image on their phone um you know and populates all of our information onto it and people okay. think that's cool so yeah just just our our own stuff designs that we come up with and and think are cool very cool and so the last thing i want to touch you talk about the next goal is five million dollars uh you know you guys cruised past three what how do you get how do you get to five what's the play so the outside sales guys coming in now, um, the business to business guy that I hired, um, mm -hmm. he's going after big, big contracts. So he's going after, um, you know, Nemours, uh, Aya DuPont. Um, he's going after the larger um, health and, and wellness groups. Um, you know, he's doing all kinds of things of that nature, um, you know, pursuing the larger clients locally 
that maybe I didn't have time to go after because I was inundated with the smaller clients. Um, so the trickle down effect has worked. I'm now, you know, going after larger clients as well. Mm -hmm. So there's two of us that are trying to go after larger clients. So, you know, where our target client might have been a $50,000 a year spend, now our his and my target client might be a $100,000 spend. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, he he's working with a client right now where, um, you know, the, the sales forecast is $1.25 million on a yearly basis. So, like, you add a client like that into your mix and you just increased your, your gross by 35%. Um, so, you know, those are the types of clients that we're trying to land now versus the uh, $50,000 a year spend. We're trying to land, you know, the six-figure and seven-figure clients. Gotcha. Very cool. All right, Jason. Well, I really appreciate the time. This has been really interesting watching you guys grow, and I'm very interested to actually follow up and, in a year or two and see where you guys are at. Cool. Hey, by the way, is there any maybe book or person you're following or you get inspiration from um, to, to help with the business or to be honest with you, man, I, I, um, there's a guy locally, uh, that, uh, he and I are very good friends. We, we talk quite a bit. Um, Caitlin's got this, this guy that she always makes me listen to his, uh, blurps, um, Gary, Gary V. Yeah. Yeah. Gary Vanderchuk. Yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden that like out of nowhere, her computer starts spitting out something. This guy's dropping F-bombs left and right. And, yeah. uh, you know, she's like, listen to this, listen to this. So, um, you know, we listen to his stuff here and there. Um, he, my just, cousin's he gets a, you amped up in the morning. He does. Sure. He can get you amped up. My cousin is a, a business coach out in California. So I've, I've, you know, touched base with her a couple of times. Um, but realistically, uh, Bruce, um, you know, it, it's all inner stuff, you know, um, working with my team and, um, I'm, I'm a very self-motivated person. My, I, I was brought up with a very serious work ethic by my parents and, uh, you know, I just, um, you know, I, I went through some things as a as a younger guy. I probably made mistakes that uh, maybe you know a lot of people would think you know you can't rebound from. And uh, I just decided like, hey, dude, I'm I've 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 been here, I've done that, and I'm not going to ever return to those things. And once you have that uh, you know that experience of of being uh, you know a lower than you want to be, um, you decide you're never going back there. And that's pretty much where I'm at, man. I I just have have decided that I'm never going to return to some of those, some of those things. And, you know, I'll hustle until I, I can't do it anymore. Awesome, Jason. Well, thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate the time again, everybody. That's Jason Gleber from Unique Tees. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce.